It's an honor to be with you in the house this morning, and I'm looking forward to sharing God's Word with you all. Church, today we are going to continue with our series on the power of God's love. Today is part three of the series, and over the past couple of weeks we have identified certain facts about God's amazing love, His everlasting love, and what that really means for our lives. As followers of Christ, we can have the confidence to wake up in the morning knowing that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and go to rest with the assurance that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And no matter what chapters are written into your life, no matter what circumstances you face, nothing can make that truth disappear because it's already been paid for and it is sealed by the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? On the backdrop of what we've, been, what we've covered over the last couple of weeks, church, as we've been absorbing this incredible truth about God's love for us, today I just want to change direction slightly, and I want to speak about what the power of God's love in our lives should be causing us to do. In other words, if we are cons so convinced of this love and so transformed by its power, then we must become conduits of this love. This love must flow out of us. We'll get into that in a moment. But church, would you agree that the word love is an overused word in our culture? We use the word love, we, we throw that word around, but it can mean so many different things, right? I mean, I can say I love my wife or I love my children. But I can also say that I love my car or my, my favorite rugby team or, or football team. Or I love poikikos, or I love biryani. What's the difference, you may ask? There's a big difference. If I say that I love my wife, it means that I care about her. I want to spend time with her. I want what's best for her. When I say that I love my car, I don't really care all that much about a personal relationship with my car. I don't want what's best for my car. Some wives are thinking, the car comes very close second to me. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, right? According to the dictionary, love is an intense feeling of deep affection for another person, a feeling of warm personal attachment. In other words, the dictionary defines it as a noun that is a feeling. The Bible, on the other hand, describes it differently. In fact, the very first time in the Bible where the word love is used, it appears in the book of Genesis. So it's a Hebrew word. And it's the Hebrew word ahav or ahava. And the word means an act of doing. It's connected directly with action and obedience, right? The root of that word means to give. And now we're starting to get the real definition or at least the biblical definition of the word love. It's a type of love, church, that cares more about giving than receiving. Right? And it's more than a feeling. Like I said earlier, in the English language, we can use that word love for many different things. But in the Greek, they were more specific in its use. And you may have heard these words before, but let me give you a short description of the different Greek words for love. There are four principal words. The first Greek word is the word eros. And eros is the term where we get the word erotic. It's physical love. 
it, it's a word that means to grab or to grasp because the idea is self-gratification. That's the first word. The second word that is used in the Greek is the word phileo. For all those bra masters out there, it's not the word fillet. It is phileo. And it means, and phileo shows up in words like Philadelphia and philanthropy. And this is brotherly love. This is affection for a friend or a special kind of fondness for another person. The third word in the Greek is the word storge, and storge is family love. Like when parents love a child and, and vice versa. It is family love and family affection. And then there's that fourth term, the word agape, which means the love of God. And it's as if the writers of the Greek New Testament wanted to come up with a word all in its own class to describe the unique kind of love that God gives to us and that we in turn should give to others. Which brings us to our main passage of Scripture this morning in Romans chapter 12. If you'd like to go there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, all the way to the end of the chapter, with a section that really is summed up with the word love. Paul is very specific in these verses on how we should love, and he makes it very practical for us. In fact, in 13 verses, it gives us no less than 30 commands, all dealing with love. And you may say, why is that so important? Because church, love is to be the very heart and motive of the Christian life. Can I say that again? Love is to be the very heart and motivation of the Christian life. And so what I want to do is, because we're not going to be able to cover everything in its entirety, I want to sum it up by dividing love up into three different categories, three different parts. First of all, love in the family. And what I mean by that is the family of God, the body of Christ. Second, love amidst hostility when we're out in the world and people don't sympathize with us or understand us. And then number three, love among our enemies when somebody's really set against you and what you believe in. So let's begin with the first love. Love in the context of the church family, the body of Christ. Reading from verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, and distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. That's all dealing with love in the context of the, the body of Christ. And the first thing that I want you to notice in verse 9 is that he begins with a statement about the quality of love. When he says, let love be without hypocrisy, what type of love is he talking about? Which of those four Greek words is he using? He uses the word agape. 
So he uses this term agape, and that's important for us to understand, church, because up to this point, Paul has never used that term agape, at least not in the book of Romans. And what he's doing is taking the term agape love, the love that God has for us, and says that is the love that you are to have for one another. Why? Because agape love is the ultimate standard for love in the Christian life. It's the one way Jesus said that the world would know that you belong to me. He said in John chapter 13, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the word love in that verse that they use there is the word agape. And you see, church, that's our calling card as Christians, love. And notice what he says in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let agape be anipokritos. Anipokritos is the Greek word where we get the words without hypocrisy and is a word that simply means to be an actor. At the time on the Greek stage when they did their plays, because they didn't have many backdrops or props, actors would come out on the stage with a few different masks on a stick, like a happy face or a sad face or an angry face or a surprised face. And they would put that mask on and speak through that mask. And that's why the word hypocrite came to mean somebody who wears a mask or is an actor. So when Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, he means genuine love, love without a mask. Not the type of love where you pay someone a nice compliment to their face, but when they turn their back, you stab them in the back, right, with a sword called gossip. That's fake love. That's love wearing a mask. And church, the family of God should never become a stage filled with fake love. It was Matthew Henry that said hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. And let me give an example of love, of fake love in the Bible. Judas Iscariot, on the night that he betrayed Jesus for a few pieces of silver, he meets Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and how does he greet him? With a kiss. And that so disappointed Jesus that he said, You betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss, this sign of affection, but in your heart you do not love. And you know, church, truthfully, I have much more respect for an honest atheist than a fake believer. Let love be without hypocrisy. And notice it is followed by another command in verse 9. Right after he talks about love, what does it say? A bore. You know what a bore means, right? It means to hate something very strongly. But isn't it strange that after talking about genuine love, he immediately talks about hate as a command? Love, hate. I want you to love this and I want you to, to hate that. Why? Because, church, part of authentic love is authentic hatred. Pastor, what do you mean? How can you love and hate something at the same time? What I mean, church, is that this is God's, part of God's character. God hates evil. God hates unrighteousness. But God loves that which is good. And God especially hates hypocrisy. God hates false religion. And you see, I want to give you this statement this morning. 
Love is the difference between relationship and religion. Love is the difference between relationship and religion. That's why the Lord even says that He, he hates these things. In the first chapter of Isaiah, God through the, the prophet speaks to His people and He says, He says this to them, Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. Another word for pious is religious. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. God is saying that he hates false religion. Love is the difference between relationship and religion. In the very next verse, speaking of this family love, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. God says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and then treat your brothers and sisters in Christ in this manner, in honor, giving them preference. And look at verse 11. Because verse 11, church, is the motive for this family love. When Paul writes, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, that's the key. Because we are serving the Lord and, and that's our motive, right? We want to please Him, we want to honor Him, and we want to serve Him. And it's in that love for Him and service to Him that spills out in loving others. In other words, church, if we love the Father, we love the Father's children. Amen? The New Living Translation puts it this way, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. I don't know about you, church, but I love seeing enthusiastic believers. I love it when you worship enthusiastically and when you serve enthusiastically. And you may say, but Pastor, you know, I don't want to do too much enthusiastically because, you know, when I'm in my Christian walk, if I do too many things enthusiastically, because people might think that I am a fanatic. So I won't tell people I'm a Christian unless they ask me. I'll slip into church and, and leave before anyone notices. Or maybe you say, listen, I used to be a fanatic when I was a young Christian, but now I am old and sophisticated. So I've, I've calmed down a bit. I heard a pastor make a statement once, and he said, it's easier to cool down a fanatic than it is to warm up a corpse. <laughs> Those are one of those where you say, amen or ain't nah, right? <laughs> because you see, you can always hold back a thoroughbred, but if you get a horse that is just lazy, it's hard to get that thing going. It's enthusiasm for God that should fuel our love for God's children. So this is family love. That's that's level number one. And level number one is so important, church, because this first expression of love among God's people, we've got to get this right. We've got to get this right because the next two levels are even harder. Loving a hostile world and then loving somebody who would be considered an enemy. And when you think about this, how are we ever going to do that if we can't love each other? If you can't love the Christian family? If Christians can't get along with each other, how in the world are they going to face the enemies and make a positive impact on them? So 
That's where it begins, right? Love in the family of God. The second level, church, is love amidst hostility. Beginning in verse 14, Paul makes an obvious pivot away from loving in the church family to love amidst hostility, loving the world around us. He's writing to a group of believers in Rome because Rome was becoming a very hostile environment for believers. It was going to be hard. It already was. But it was going to get much harder for them to live out their Christian belief system in the world of Rome because it was becoming so hostile toward them. So question, how do you love when you're under pressure from an unbelieving world? Let's read from verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a challenge in Scripture right there. And what is Paul saying here, church? He gives us these commands on how we should respond. And in essence, what he is saying is that our love should be independent of the treatment that we receive from others. That's such an important thing for us to understand as Christians. Our love has to be independent of the treatment that we receive from other people. So they may curse us, but we will bless them. They may hate us, but we will love them. They may avenge us, but we won't. We will commit them to the Lord. Now that sounds fantastic on paper, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but let me tell you something, that is impossible. That is impossible apart from being plugged in to Jesus Christ. If you try to do this in your own, in your own strength, it's not going to work. You're going to fail. But here's the good news this morning. When you are plugged into Jesus, when you are abiding in Jesus, when you're connected to Him, you have an endless capacity to show love. You'll never get to the place where you say, listen, I'm out of love. It just ran out. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, For the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God pours His love into us, and that never stops. And if that never stops, church, the love we pour out to others can never stop. We have that capacity. We have an endless capacity to show love because we receive endlessly that capacity from Him. That everlasting capacity. Now, let's be honest this morning. Loving people who are lovely, that's easy, right? 
people that love you and agree with you all the time, right, that's a breeze. But loving hostile people, people who are not sympathetic with you, that's not so easy. But it's commanded. It is mandated. And to be able to love amidst hostility, Paul gives us two useful steps. The first step is to empathize, and the second step is to harmonize. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's to empathize. You see, church, love tries to enter into the emotions of other people. If they're up, if they're down, if they're crying or they're laughing, if they're disappointed or they're overjoyed, love will try to do that. Let me ask you a question. What is the shortest verse in the New Testament? You sorry? There's a bit of a confusion. I know there's a bit of debate, but I'm going to use Jesus wept this morning. <laughs> and why did Jesus weep? He shows up at Lazarus' funeral, but he wasn't crying because Lazarus was dead, because he knew that he was going to raise that boy back from the dead in about five minutes. Why was he crying? Because Mary and Martha were crying, right? He was entering into the emotional state at the time. And probably weeping also because of the unbelief that he saw in the crowd. But it says that Jesus wept. So that's the first step, to, to empathize. The second step, church, is to harmonize. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. All men means believers and non-believers. And church, two qualifications to being a peacemaker. Number one, you initiate it. As much as depends on you. Don't sit there with your arms folded and say, listen, I'll only make peace if you initiate it, or if they initiate it. They have to reach out to me. They're the ones that hurt me, so you know what? They must call me. No, you reach out to them. As much as depends on you. But there's a second qualification to making peace. Both parties have to want it. Sometimes they don't. That's why Paul says, if it is possible. Because sometimes, frankly, it's just not possible. You initiate, right? You want to make peace and you say, let's talk about this or let's pray about this together. But they go, talk to the hand, go away from me. I don't even want to engage with you. I'm going to cut myself off from you. And you know what, church? You're not responsible for that. You're only responsible for your motive and for your heart. Right? You can control your response, but you cannot control theirs. So as much as you can, as much as depends on you, take the initiative, empathize, and then harmonize. So that's love in the family. Love amidst hostility now, in the last part of the message, church, I want to focus on something very specific, and that is love among our enemies. This is getting harder, right? Look at verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, you'll discover in life, church, that God is always better at vengeance than we are. First of all, He knows the motives. 
my motives, their motives. He knows the details, my details, their details. And he will deal with vengeance much better than I can. And some of you may be sitting there this morning and thinking, you know what, Pastor, I don't have many enemies in my life. If that's you this morning, you either haven't lived long enough or you're lying through your teeth. (laughs) Because we all have enemies. The Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines an enemy as one that is antagonistic to another. Do you have any of those? David said in Psalm chapter 23, you prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. Right? Did David have enemies? He had many. Goliath was an enemy. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the, the Moabites, and the Syrians were his enemies. Even his father, father-in-law Saul was an enemy. His own son Absalom became an enemy. Now, why do we have enemies? Well, because firstly, we are human, and secondly, because we are Christians. And church, if you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, if you follow Him passionately, if you serve Him enthusiastically, which means you will be vocal about your love for Him in this world, you are going to pick up a number of enemies along the way. Paul gave Timothy this promise. He said, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because you see, hell is not going to give you a a standing ovation if you're an obedient, evangelizing child of God. The minute you say, I believe that there's only one way to heaven, and His name is Jesus Christ, when you start being that narrow-minded and that vocal about who you are and what you believe in, all hell is going to be loosed against you. And church, great persecution is simply the result of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and and preach the gospel. So what are we to do then? What are we to do when we gather enemies along the way? Do we strike back? Are we to, to hit them harder? Are we to plot ways to make them pay for what they've done? Because vengeance is fun, isn't it? It's very satisfying because it feeds our, our flesh, it feeds our base nature. It reminds me about a story that I heard of a housekeeper that worked for a family for a number of decades. Very loyal, very faithful woman. And she arrived at work one day and the family said to her, listen, we're moving off to another part of the country. Here's your last paycheck. Take your stuff and leave. No thank you, no severance pay, no bonus. She tried to ask a few questions and said, listen, stop giving us hassle and just, just go. Right? Treated her very poorly. Very disappointed. She was crying. But on her way out, she reached into her purse and, and pulled out a 200 rand note and threw it at the, on the floor to the dog. The homeowner said to her, looked at her and said, why did you do that? She said, I never forget a friend. I'm just thanking you for helping me clean your dishes all these years. And you know why we laugh? You know why we laugh? Because we like it. Vengeance is mine, right? (laughs) Now, church, why should we love our enemies? Why should we forgive them? Why should we feed and clothe and bless them? I'm glad you've asked. I'll, I'll give you three reasons why we should. Number one, because Jesus commanded it. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And that's so foreign to our thinking, isn't it? It's so radical because it's so unusual and just about nobody does that. But Jesus said, Jesus said do it. It's a command. The second reason, not only did Jesus command it, but Jesus also practiced it. He lived it. We know the story, right? They insulted him. They beat him up. They put a, a crown of, of thorns on his head. They even nailed him to a cross. And when he was hanging on that cross, did he call out to the Father and say, Father, just send down a nuclear weapon and kill all these people? And did he say to the crowd that was, that was mocking him and, and beating him, did he say, wait, after three days, I'm coming after you? <laughs> we might do that. We might have done that, right? But what were the first words out of his mouth? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? Jesus commanded it. Jesus practiced it. And here's the third reason. People will notice it. When you do that, people will sit up and notice it, church, because nobody does that. When you bless someone who curses you, when you pray for someone that persecutes you, people will stop and take notice. That's the gist of verse 20. Verse 20 says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And we kind of like that term, heap coals of fire on his head, right? Because we think, you know, that person's doing me wrong. They're just going to heap coals of fire on their head. They're going to burn. But let me explain what this really means, church. Church, that's an illustration of an old Egyptian custom. When a person wanted to demonstrate public repentance... They put a cloth on their head for insulation, and on that cloth put a small pan of burning coals to represent burning shame, burning pain, and shame of guilt. It was a way of saying publicly, I'm really sorry about that, and I want you to see how sorry I am. So what Paul is saying in, in using this illustration is that when you love your enemy, when you don't retaliate, when you feed him, when you bless him, he is ashamed for his hatred. Because he's like, I was really rotten and evil to that person, but they were so good and they showed love to me. There's an illustration of that in the Bible with David and Saul. Saul tried to kill David. Saul hunted David down. And one day Saul went into a cave and David was there. Saul didn't know that. One of David's mighty men said, kill him for God has delivered him into your hand. But David said, I won't do that. He is God's anointed. I won't touch him. Right? But he cut a piece of cloth off of Saul's robe. When Saul left, David was on the other side of the valley, and he started waving that little cloth around saying, I could have killed you, right? But you are God's anointed, and I love you. It says when Saul saw that and heard that, he wept. And he cried out to David, saying, You are more righteous than I am, for you repaid me with good, and I repaid you with evil. That's heaping coals of fire on one's head. 
And church, as I wrap up this morning, when I was thinking about the type of love that Jesus asks us and commands us to do, I was thinking, you know, as Christians, why do we battle with that so, so much and so often? We even battle sometimes to, to love each other in the body of Christ. And I was thinking, is, it, is there re- one of the reasons why is because we built up certain walls within our hearts where we haven't given us or we haven't allowed ourselves to, to love again. Because you may be sitting there this morning and thinking, if I am to love like this, like Jesus commanded me to, right? To love the family of God, to love amidst hostility, and to even love my enemies, that means there's a good chance that my heart's going to be broken. And you're thinking, I've already been hurt by so many other people before. I don't think that I can handle that again, and I don't know if I want to open my heart again to others. You may have really been wounded before in church, and because of that, right, you've been guarding your heart so tightly, and you've built up these walls that imprison you. Or you've developed these lenses that paint everyone with the same brush, especially Christians. But I want to say to you this morning, church, God says, love them again. Be vulnerable again. Open your heart again. How many times must I do that, Pastor? Again and again and again. Because we're not going to be able to love the way that Jesus commanded us to love if we are not willing to open our hearts again. I'd like to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. If the worship team could come up so long, please. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, writes the statement. He says, to love it all, and I want you to pay attention to this church. Don't mind the, the worship team. Listen to the statement. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be squeezed and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, your heart will change. Safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will become impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and risks of love is hell. That's a powerful statement right there. Church, God is saying this morning, love again. Be vulnerable again. The love of God is still being poured out into your heart. We have an endless capacity to show love because we endlessly receive it from His capacity and unlimited source. I want to say to you today, receive it afresh and give it afresh so that the world goes, man, that guy or that woman, they're different because they showed me love when I showed them hatred. Jesus commanded it. Jesus did it. And church, people will sit up and take notice of it.